Hello, Duncan Green here with the weekly roundup of posts from, from Poverty to Power. Slightly grumpy because this is the second time I've done it. I think the uh, disc was full or something. I've done it all once and then there was nothing on the um, to, to upload. So I'm having another go now. But anyway, hopefully this will work. So first up <coughs> this week was links I liked. A couple of things here. First, a blatant plug for a set of lectures I've been involved in organising at the LSE called Cutting Edge Issues in Development Thinking and Practice. We kicked off last week with Jayati Ghosh, the Indian economist, who was great, with John Harris discussing her contribution. This week we've got Danny Kwa and Robert Wade talking about global power shift to Asia. So, um, Danny has got his speciality is he came up with this idea of a, a global economic center of gravity where you can weight according to the GDP of, of different economies where the global center of gravity is and he can show, he's shown how it moves east towards China and towards East Asia over the recent decades. Very smart little um, infographic. Um, anyway, he's lecturing on the global power shift to Asia. And then next week we have uh, Samuel Huck, uh, who's uh, one of the heroes of climate change activism, been to every single conf conference of the party, the COP, since 1997, and is just indefatigable campaigner for, <clears throat> for his country, Bangladesh, but also for climate change worldwide and trying to tackle it. The other, post I, uh, the other link I, I rather liked this, this week was um, a piece of work from the Congo, which shows that tax collection stimulates citizen participation and demand for accountable governance, even in settings with weak states and autocratic regimes. So if you can get people collecting tax, citizens start to say, hold on a minute, what's happening to this? What are you doing with the money? And you start to get a sort of positive, um, a virtuous circle of politics and taxation and revenue. So nice, nice piece of work there. A slurp of tea, apologies for that. Second post was, um, <clears throat> I'm an avid reader of The Economist, which sometimes feels like a bit of a guilty pleasure. It's quite, it can be quite right wing. It's very pro-market. It's very dismissive of, of left wing ideas, but it has a number of things going for it. One is they have the most brilliant writers and I'm, I'm seduced by good writing, I'm afraid. Um, but they also just, <clears throat> they do these great helicopter overviews of big issues. And there's uh, and they had a great one this week called the, uh, it's their special report on the world economy. And it's looking at the, the longer term impact of the current pandemic meltdown. Uh, so here's a taste of why I like The Economist so much. <clears throat> Conditions before the pandemic were forged by the three biggest economic shocks of the 21st century. The integration of China into the world trading system the financial crisis and the rise of the digital economy. As China, just check it's working because I'm not, I'm suspicious. Yes, it is. As Chinese workers left rural poverty for factories, cheap goods flowed west and financial assets flowed east, helping to create low inflation, low interest rates and lost rich world manufacturing jobs. The financial crisis caused a collapse in demand that further depressed interest rates, even as globalization stalled. The rise of technology contributed to a decline in competition, bumper corporate profits, and a fall in the share of national income flowing to workers as superstar firms reaped the rewards of network effects and natural monopolies. The COVID-19 pandemic is a fourth big shock. Fantastic synthesis of huge amounts of, of information and, and, and um, detail. 
And then he, the, the Economist thinks the pandemic will mark a turning point in politics and geopolitics, as well as economics, especially the rise of China, which has come through it fairly unscathed compared to Europe and North America. There will be both the appetite and the conditions to facilitate a rewriting of the social contract in ways that many hoped might follow globalization and the financial crisis. So it's saying that the things people thought would happen in 2008 after the 2008 meltdown may happen now. And I'll come back to that uh, in, a, in a post later in the week. And here, yeah, the, the Economist is not a left wing rag, but it does say things like better to raise taxes to finance an adequate welfare state than to lay poverty traps and distort incentives with poorly designed eligibility tests. So I'm coming around to them, really. Uh, um, uh, very good report, worth reading. Just to show a nice bit of balance, the third post of the week came from Civicus, the International Network of Civil Society Organisations. And they've written a brief on the, um, the, the COVID pandemic called A Snapshot of Restrictions and Attacks. Um, so the point they make at the beginning was that 2000, things were going so well in some senses that 2019 was a historic year for protest movements. Thousands of people on the streets in Chile, Hong Kong, India, Lebanon, many other countries. And most of those mobilizations were continuing into 2020. And the pandemic brought it all to a grinding halt as states introduced emergency measures, uh, including restrictions on public gatherings. So <clears throat> what happened is that those big mass protests, which are the sort of stock in trade of a lot of civil society organizations, had to stop. And CSOs had to find other ways to achieve their aims, other ways to mobilize, lots more online, lots more creative, lots more symbolic kinds of protest. And I think this is a really interesting side effect of the um, of the pandemic and something I'm exploring in the emergent agency project which we're involved in. Um, and yes, yeah, the, the Civicus points to the bad stuff, freedom of expression under threat, governments using the pandemic as an excuse to crack down even harder. But it says there are some bright spots and I'll, re I'll concentrate on these just because we all need a bit of good news at the moment. While the restrictions imposed by many states paint a worrying picture globally, there have also been some positive developments during the pandemic. In Kenya, activists and CSOs successfully challenged the use of excessive police force, resulting in at least a dozen officers being indicted. In Bolivia, CSOs and uh, media fought back against a decree sanctioning, as in punishing, those who disinform or cause uncertainty to the population. Cause uncertainty. Everything causes uncertainty at the moment. Anyway, this was going to be breaking the law in Bolivia. And the, the interim president, Janine Agnes, has revoked the decrees after a big push from domestic and international CSOs. And then in Honduras, a decree was 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 on the way instituting a state of emergency uh, and restricting the right to freedom of expression um, and media associations and 21 CSOs made a big fuss and the government withdrew the um, you know, re-established constitutional guarantees on the freedom of expression so there are some wins out there going on despite the difficulties of organizing under uh, under COVID on number uh, fourth post of the week, I came back to this idea that COVID could be a watershed, a tipping point, a critical juncture or paradigm shift. And this was a, a piece actually written in May, which I came across by Rutger Bregman uh, in The Correspondent. Um, and, and Bregman is best known as the tax guy. 
he rocked Davos last year on a panel where he just harangued the people in the audience for not paying enough tax. He said, look, I don't care. What's the point of coming here and talking about corporate social responsibility and um, you know, tackling climate change if you guys don't pay tax? And he was backed up by Oxfam's Winnie Bianyima and it became one of the viral moments of Davos. When he's not uh, causing trouble at Davos, he's a historian. And he brought to this piece a really lovely historical lens, a sort of long view of, of the link between shocks and change. And he went back to one of my you know, favourite quotes, which is actually from Milton Friedman, who said, the job of academics is to have ideas lying around for the next shock, because that's when those ideas will get picked up. And Bregman's point was 2008, massive shock, but there weren't really enough powerful ideas for alternative economic um, policies or a big alternative picture of how the economy should function, how government should regulate the economy. And that allowed us to slip back into the status quo ante, to slip into austerity. And although people were fighting a defensive battle, they didn't have a positive agenda. He thinks this time is different, that he thinks in the intervening years, but since 2008, there's been a lot of work around things like inequality, the French, a bunch of French economists led by Thomas Piketty, um, some great work by Mariana Matucato, Hajun Chang on industrial policy. He thinks this has got the, the makings of having enough ideas lying around for a paradigm shift coming out of, of the pandemic. And I only hope he's right. Um, let's, uh, we won't know till it's all over. But anyway, last post of the week was uh, a plug for an Oxfam paper, Beating the Drum, by my colleagues at Oxfam Novib, which is the Netherlands uh, Oxfam, quite a big one. And this paper is on how do influencing networks get results? And it's by Ninka Kuperus, Marika Miska and Saskia van Veen. And apologies for my mangling of their names. So they, they've, they've got a, a set of influencing networks, which are those multi-stakeholder initiatives, coalitions of organisations that come together to press for a change. And the interesting thing about them is that they're often very dissimilar organisations. You know, NGOs sitting next to corporate executives, sitting next to academics, sitting next to government, you know, uh, civil society organisations, whatever. And so they looked at nine of these um, and sort of went backstage and asked the people who are really at the centre of them to reflect on their choice of strategies and what works and you know what doesn't. They've got three big categories, uh, influencing international organisations like the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, influencing national governments like campaigns on sexual and reproductive health rights in Indonesia and Malawi, and then influencing at multiple levels, a really interesting one on, on uh, getting more women into the Afghan police, for example. So they looked at all these and then they looked at patterns coming up across these nine case studies and they got a few headlines. So one is that when you have diverse networks, when you have really different people sitting down together, they seem to consciously search for a balance between working at national, regional and local level. So a balance in the composition leads to a balance in the activity, which is interesting. I hadn't seen that before. Um, the, the collaborations between really different players often have to be very loosely structured. You can't have a big constitution and a lot of rules because people are so different that they'll just fight if you try and close them into a, a very tight system. So a loose structure is better and allows people to work within their own you know, um, world. There's a common thread that 
you need a binding vision, a shared ambition, which is like a glue that binds these networks together. But the interesting thing is that that ambition isn't static, it changes over time. So what you need is a constant process of discussion and renegotiation to keep the consensus among those network members that this is the goal. Uh, and if you've got that goal, then people can come together and get stuff done. All, all good, all interesting. Left me with lots more questions. Um, some acknowledged in the report, this is not the last piece of work on this. How do you manage the tensions between insider and outsider? There are always tensions between the people who want to go to the public, go to the press, organize things on the streets. And the people who say, no, no, let, we'll get further if we just you know, go along and talk to people quietly, um, you know, corridors of power, influencing. And the, 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 there's always a lot of tension between those people, partly because they're different psychologies. It's not just tactics. There are different people do those things and they don't necessarily like or respect each other. The role of luck and accident. Whenever people write up these case studies, there's a tendency to make them look wonderfully planned and thought through that, you know, the originators are geniuses, colossi, colossi who, who thought of everything and got it all right, and that's why we won. Often, there's an awful lot of luck and serendipity involved. Something happens which no one foresaw, and things fall into place, or people respond cleverly to a, to a new opportunity. So I think we need to think about how, how important luck and accident are in these things. And then something about the online. You know, all, all of these studies say, yeah, everything's going online, especially now after COVID, the acceleration of the move from an analog to a digital world. And I'm just interested in the politics of that. You know, so yeah, networks spread much quicker in an online world. Um, yeah, you don't have the barrier of distance. Is there a cost to that? Like, you know, for example, is the trust of face-to-face -face relationship diluted online? Um, so this is a kind of ongoing concern of mine that... Um, you get very broad, shallow links rather than narrow, deep links, something that Malcolm Gladwell wrote about during the Arab Spring. That's enough from me. Have a great weekend. Talk to you next week.